All right, chapter number three, um, the front of it's a little bit easier, um, but the back of it is a little bit harder, okay? And uh, so I don't tell you that. Now, please, I think I say this every week. I mean, no disrespect whatsoever when I describe maybe the difficulty of a passage. And I've said this to some folks, I think, in private. I probably said it from the pulpit as well. To the original audience, there would have been no confusion. The original audience would have totally grasped it. They were Jews. They had, they had grown up Jews. They had studied the law. They would have totally grasped, you know, the author's references to the Old Testament. They would have totally grasped the author's references to who the, the pronoun was and who the he and the him was. Some of that's available a little bit easier in the original language than, than in the English as we're just looking at three hymns and we got to decide who the hymns are. The text always, we have enough in our language to be able to understand it. Uh, particularly if you think about that passage where it's the captain of our salvation, it says, him to perfect him the captain of our salvation. It's, it's quite clear. You just got to do a little bit of study and you got to pay attention when you're reading. So, I mean, no disrespect for it, but I also do mean this. I said it at the beginning, Hebrews is a book you can end up a heretic on accident, okay? And uh, so you've got to pay close attention and uh, be very intentional as you read the scripture and understand what's happening. There's a couple of things. I'll give you a kind of a foreshadowing. There's a couple of things the author is going to tell us to lay hold on, to not let go. And if we let go of them, something happens. But what that something is might not be what you think. And what that thing is you're holding might not be what you think. And uh, so I know that might not make a lot of sense, but you'll, it'll make sense in verse 6 and in verse 14. So let's just hang on to it. Let's enjoy the first part of the ride. The first part of the ride is pretty easy. And uh, we're going to get into that Jesus is better than Moses. And uh, we'll get into a little bit of dispensation. Don't let that scare you. It's the word the Bible uses, and I'm not afraid of it. Um, but let's get into it today, if you would. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 1. It says, wherefore, holy brethren, so he's talking to saved people, but specifically he's talking to Jewish people. He says, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers, and we actually saw this verse last Sunday night, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Isn't that unique? And we only briefly mentioned it Sunday night because I wanted to save it for this. Uh, isn't it unique that Christ would be called the apostle? Uh, it, it's, it's a term that I don't know anywhere else in scripture is assigned to Christ, um, but it is extremely unique, at least to me, to see that Christ is called the apostle of our, uh, our profession and of our salvation. Now, why would Jesus be called an apostle? He wasn't one of the 12. Well, you got to understand what the word apostle actually means. It's a title that's given to a specifically and specially elected messenger. And so when Christ called the 12 apostles to himself, he specifically elected these 12 men to carry an intentional message into the world. And uh, we saw a verse in my class on Wednesday night that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the chief cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. And so the foundation of the apostles is not some weird papal Catholic thing. It's simply that the faith once delivered to the saints, as far as the church goes, was delivered to the apostles that were delivered to other men and faithful men who would teach others also. So as 2 Timothy 2, 2 or 2.16 says, it's supposed to keep going forth. And so, yes, Christ was the specially elected messenger on behalf of the Father to bring to us salvation. Now, verse number two says, who is faithful to him that appointed him. And so Christ was faithful to the Father who sent him. And that's corroborated by the words of Jesus Christ all of the time during his life. He says, I must work the work to him that sent me. Uh, his parents come back to Jerusalem. They don't know how they lost him. And he says, you know, you must know that I must be about my father's business. You surely understood that. And so Christ here is, is reaffirmed as having been faithful to him that appointed him. Verse number two, the end of it is going to introduce us our next kind of chapter, if you will, our next Jesus is better than. Notice what it says. 
who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Now, it's important to understand the word that's being used here. The word house is uh, the word for the word that we might get the word dispensation from. It's the Greek word oikias, which the easy way to remember that, and you don't have to remember it, you'll be fine if you don't. The word oikias, think about Ikea. Uh, you go to Ikea to buy things for your, there it is. So it's an easy word to remember. And so what the Bible's telling us here is that Moses was faithful in all of his house. Now, that's important for us to understand. He's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about a time frame that God appointed Moses to lead over. So when you find the house of David, it's not talking about his actual house. It's not talking about like, you know, 1960 Ming Avenue was David's house. It's talking about the leadership that David had over that particular time frame. Now, I want to just real quick, I am not. There are some people <clears throat> who you'd have to call hyper-dispensationalists, and dispensation just means this. There was a certain time frame at a certain time. God worked in a certain way with a certain group of people. Now, there are those who believe that means that in the Old Testament, you were saved by sacrifice and work. That's not in the Bible at all. And in fact, that's, that, I, I, would, I would attest to that being heretical because the Bible tells us quite clearly Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, that salvation was always by grace through faith, belief in a Messiah to come, just like we believe in a Messiah who came. And so when you get into dispensations, you understand God dealt with Israel in a certain, in a certain time frame in a certain way. Now, it's always by grace. He was always leading them by faith. He was always painting pictures of things to come. These were shadows, but not the express thing themselves. They were shadows. God was moving. It's not, God doesn't have multiple personalities and decides to be one way now. No, be this way now. No, he was intentionally laying foundations, foundation stones, and he was dealing with people in certain time frames in certain ways, but is always guiding us to Jesus Christ. And so I'm not one who ascribes to the 63 dispensations of the, I don't even know where you get that. But was there a time of the law? Absolutely. Is there an age of grace? 100%. Is there coming someday a, a millennial reign and an eternal reign with Jesus? Absolutely. And so in different times, in different ways, the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dealt very differently in the Old Testament than he does in the church age. And so you don't need to be afraid of that. I, again, I don't ascribe to the idea of being hyper-dispensationalist. But right here, we are talking about a time frame where Moses was put over something, this oikios, this dispensation, this time frame of authority. And that matters because it's going to matter in the text because we're not necessarily talking about salvation. If you read this passage, the coming passage, thinking we're talking about salvation, you're going to lose your salvation, which the Bible is very clear you can't do. So let's look at it. In verse number three, it says, for this man, Moses, was counted worthy of more glory, or forgive me, Jesus, uh, for this man, Jesus, was counted more worthy, or worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. So I told you we're not talking about a physical structure, but the author here alludes to a physical structure to bring to us a point. He says, now Moses was faithful over his house. Jesus deserves more glory because the person who builded the house, a physical structure, deserves more glory than the guy that lives inside of the house, is essentially what he's saying. God appointed Moses a leader over this time frame, but God was the one who created the house. God was the one who created Israel. God is the one who created mankind. So read that again, because again, the, the, the this man, I kind of I kind of flubbed it, and that happens. Look at verse 3. For this man, we're talking Jesus, was counted, counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he that hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. And so this house that Moses is over, he's a part of this house, and Jesus built him. Jesus made him. Let's keep reading, if you will, verse number, uh, verse number four. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. 
Now, if you'll remember in verse 3, it said Jesus was the one who built the house. If you remember in verse number 4, it says that God was the one who built the house. This is a clear and, and well-attested to assertion of the deity of Jesus Christ. If, if the one who built Moses and his leadership is greater than Moses, and the one who built him is Jesus, and the one who built him is God, then Jesus is God. It's a very easy reading of the text. Verse number five. For Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. You see, even Moses' leadership, as great as Moses was, he was a picture of the great leader, Jesus, the one who would come and be faithful in all of his house. In fact, all of Moses' house too, because he was the one who created it. I think it's unique and, and worth pointing out that the author here isn't trashing Moses to build up Jesus. It's just not necessary. In fact, the perfection of Christ requires no such scheme. He doesn't need to trash Moses and say, you know what, Moses was such a bad leader, but Jesus is a better one because Moses was bad. No, the author says Moses was great. Moses was faithful in all his house. But the one who built the house is greater and worthy of more honor than the house itself. And so Jesus doesn't need, or rather, the, the author doesn't need to tear down Moses in order to build up Christ. The perfection of Christ is enough. And I was talking to, I think it was Brother Bob. Um, I, I haven't seen, man, I think the last, and I, I'm going to step way away from the pulpit because I hate to even talk about it, but I think you'll understand. Um, the, the Mission Impossible movies, I haven't seen one since like the 90s. Uh, it's my understanding that Tom Cruise is like, like this tall. And uh, it's my understanding that in all the movies, they make everybody look shorter and him look taller. And so, so as to make the hero of the story look more heroic, the author of Hebrews doesn't need to do that with Jesus. He says, man, Moses was awesome. He was faithful in all his house. He was a great leader. But Jesus was the one who built his house, and the one who built the house is worthy of greater honor than the one who was over the house. So verse number six. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we? Okay, now, stretch your mind, crack your knuckles if you must. Don't get lost. Because verse 6 can make you a heretic, okay? Now, we know, and let me sidebar before we even get there. We know, the Bible is very clear that once you are saved, you are always saved. The Bible is unequivocally absolute about that, that we are given the earnest of the Holy Spirit and at the day of redemption, we will be brought to him that no man can take you out of the hands of God. We have studied at great length through the first John. We'll actually go back there again today about the unpardonable sin, as it were, uh, this rejection of the record that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bore that Jesus was the Christ. You reject that, you're on your way to hell. Now this passage, you have to be very careful because you can end up all kinds of squirreling. Notice what it says. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? So we are under the physical structure of Jesus or the authority structure of Jesus? The authority structure of Jesus. If, notice that there's a big uh, if in the next, it's the very next word. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? The saved people, if. So is he saying, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to kind of paint the questions before we even get there. Is he saying that we're, we're saved if we do what is about to be said? Or is it saying that we will be under his authority structure if we do what he's about to say? Don't answer that out loud, but let's follow the text. But Christ as the son of his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, there are, there's a whole group of people who believe that you can lose your salvation if you lose the confidence and hope of your salvation. You are going to be lost 
because you lost your salvation. Is that what that text is saying? Now, even if you can't articulate what that text is saying, if you know the rest of the Bible, the very clear parts of the Bible, you know for sure that can't be what the text is saying, and it's not what the text is saying, okay? So I'm going to try to be really diligent as I walk through this. So listen, it's not saying we lose our salvation if we don't hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. It's not saying that. But what it is saying is we can lose our confidence and rejoicing in being under his authority structure. We can lose that. There's a big if in there, but the if isn't, hey, you're going to lose your salvation if you let go of this. Notice what it says. If we hold fast, we are his household under his authority structure. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. He says, you're under his authority structure. And now I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. He's going to use the nation of Israel as an example that they were still his nation, though they didn't hold to him. They lost the blessings of God, but they never lost their election. And so this verse is not telling us we can lose our salvation, but rather that we can, we can come out from under his authority structure should we walk away from holding fast the confidence and rejoicing of our hope all the way to the end. Imagine it this way. Um, if you're inside of a house and my kids, they come to my table and they get to eat at my table and they're part of my family and they're going to remain part of my family if they stick around. But if they walk away, did they lose their their child? Did they lose the fact that I'm their father? No, but they've lost that hope and that fellowship. They've, they've come out from my oikias. They've come out from my headship, my authority and rule. It doesn't mean that they're lost you know, unretrievably, but it means that they've lost that confidence and that hope and that rejoicing uh, in being a part of my family. Now, I know that isn't as easy to see in verse six, but if you'll wait with me for just a second, by the time we get to verse 14, you got to put it all back together. I think it'll become more clear. So if there's a little bit of mud in the water right now, just, just hold on. There's a couple of clear uh, clarifications the author's going to give us, and he's going to use Israel as an example and some of that. But by the time we get to verse 14, I think it will come full circle and be rather clear. So hold on to that, if you will, till we get there. Let's jump into verse 7. He says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if we will hear his voice, hey, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. He said, just like Israel, don't, don't do that. Don't come away from God's authority structure. Just like Moses was faithful over his house, even though his house wasn't faithful, they came out in the day of provocation. They provoked the Lord. God says, don't do that to your head, Jesus. He's the, the Lord over our house or the captain of our salvation. Verse number eight, harden not your hearts as in the, day, as in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, notice what their fathers did. When your fathers tempted me, Proved me and saw my works 40 years. Now, verse number nine would be awesome if it wasn't the, for the first part. You imagine if it just said, listen, they proved me and saw my works for 40 years. What they did wasn't bad in that they got to see God's greatness. Why they did it was bad. They did it because they didn't believe him. They tempted him. They said, you can't provide for us in the wilderness and we should go back to Egypt where there was leeks and, and, and food and bread and, and they didn't believe him. And so in not believing him, they questioned him. And in questioning him, they saw his works. But again, let's, as Christians, we can do the last two. Let's just leave off the first. We can come to God and say, Lord, I, I'm in the desert and I need something. Hey, let me, let me show you my works. Prove me and I'll show you my goodness to you. So again, the origin of their proving was a lack of faith. And that's where it becomes a problem. And that's why God is saying through this author, hey, don't be like the fa- our forefathers who proved God in the wilderness and tempted him. Don't be that. Verse 10. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation. So it's speaking in God first person. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their hearts 
and they have not known my ways. I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Because they believed not God, they received not his blessings. Because they didn't hold their hope and their confidence in remaining under the headship of their creator, they forfeited the blessing. That's what this passage is talking about. And, and across scripture, entering into Jordan land isn't, isn't the promise of heaven. It is almost, ne- I, don't, I think you can say it is never a type of going into heaven. It's always a type of going into the blessings of God because these people who even died in the wilderness were still considered God's people. They hadn't lost that, though God was letting them die in the wilderness because they didn't deserve his blessings, but he was going to bring them into the blessings. So again, don't conflate. They went into promise. That was heaven. No, it's just the blessings. And that's the picture that he's using. So these big picture, that's the big picture over these next few verses. Look at verse 12. Take heed, brethren, right? So he's talking about saints, not just talking about Jews, though in the Old Testament, when you saw brethren, it was always talking about Jews. Now it's talking about saints. He says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So he said, it is quite possible in the church, there is an evil spirit and people in the congregation even do not believe in Jesus Christ. Well, that's quite clearly what John talked about in 1 John, that spirit of Antichrist, the one that says, I reject who Jesus is. I reject the record of who Jesus is. I reject that Christ is the son of the living God. I reject that Christ has come in the flesh. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And the author here is simply saying, hey, you're in the church, but I want to make sure you recognize that if there's an evil heart of unbelief, that you're not saved. Uh, In fact, you can keep your finger there and go to 1 John. We're going to get to 1 John in a second. We'll read uh, some in uh, 1 John uh, in just a minute. But that evil spirit of unbelief is one that denies the record of the Father. But if you're, if you're still in Hebrews, let's look at verse 13, on our way to verse 14. It says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sins. So the author's concerned, hey, make sure you're saved. And if you're saved, make sure that you're right with God because you're not going into the blessings of God without it. You're not coming under his lordship without it. Uh, let's look, lean in close to verse number 14. And I want you to be a good student. There's a connection between 6 and 14, okay? We read verse 6. Let's read verse 14. It's, it's written almost exactly the same. For we are made partakers of Christ. What's the, the next word? Big word. If. Okay, so that's important. So there's an if there. There's a, this is contingent on something. We're partakers with Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, now look at verse 6, please. Look at verse 6. Just go back up and uh, look at verse 6. And it tells us there that we're supposed to hold our confidence and our hope until the end. Okay, so let's try to, I'm going to try to make this like a visual. So here in verse six, it says, hey, hold your confidence and your hope of your salvation, right? But then it says in verse 14, hold the beginning of your confidence. Well, let me ask you a question. Where does the confidence of salvation come from? Where does, where does faith come from? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This is the exact same thing John talked about. In fact, go to 1 John chapter 5, verse number 7. So here's what he's saying. Hey, in verse 6, you can lose your confidence and your joy and your hope if you don't hold on to that and sit at his table under his lordship. In verse 14, he says, but listen, I want to make sure there's not an evil spirit of unbelief inside of you. You have to hold to the beginning of your confidence. You have to hold to the doctrines of Jesus. You have to hold to the scripture. You have to recognize the record of who Christ is. And should someone refuse that, one, they're not saved, and two, they never were. 
That's what First John tells us, that they went out from us because they were never of us. And that's not talking about backsliding. That's talking about someone who professes that, that the works of Christ are, are the works of the devil. That's someone who denies the very lordship of Jesus Christ. And First John chapter 5 deals exclusively with this. And we went through this when we did First John a couple of months ago at the beginning of the year. Look at First John chapter 5, verse 7. He says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. Now, most of the time we read that verse, we only focus on the last part, that these three are one. And that's true. That's the Trinity. But I want you to recognize what the first part of verse 7 says. There are three that bear record. So they're holding a record, and they're agreeing in one. They are one. And this record, they're stating uniformed this record. Well, what's this record? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in the earth. So they're, they're, pro, they're preaching. There's, there's a witness of some record. Well, what's the record? Uh, and here are the ones who bear witness of the record. The spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. So here's the record the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are holding up. Here's the witness the Father, the blood, and the, let me make sure I get that, the Spirit, the water, and the blood agree about. Verse number nine, the very end of it. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. Verse 10. He that believeth on the Son hath the witness in himself. That's the whole message, who the Son is. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar, because he hath not believed the record that God gave of his Son. So that's the record. That's, the, that's what the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son are. They're bearing a record and the Spirit, the blood and the water are witnessing of that record. And if we have the record of man, the record of God is greater. And if anyone rejects the Son, they've rejected the record of the Father. Let's keep reading verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. If you were to keep reading, we don't have time, but if you keep reading, in this same exact chapter, John talks about there's a sin unto death, that unpardonable sin, and it all is tied back to this, that we must accept the record. So look at me. Let's go back to this visual. The beginning of our confidence that is our salvation is the record of Jesus. It's the word of God. And that that word of God can be received by faith through hearing. And when I hear and I have faith, I'm now saved. And God is admonishing me in chapter number three of Hebrews that I hold not just to the confidence of that faith, but the beginning of that confidence, that I hold tightly to it and that I have joy and I have hope. That's verse number six, that I have hope and I have joy in this confidence knowing that I'm his and that I want to check my heart and make sure there's not an evil spirit of unbelief somehow, that I didn't believe the record. But if I hold fast, to the beginning of my confidence, then I'm his. And I know I'm his. And because I'm his, I'm not going to fall away. I'm not going to, to, to someday in my you know, late 40s become you know, uh, an unbeliever or some false heretic. That's not going to happen because I'm his. And, and if that ever did happen, it's because I never trusted Christ, not because I lost it somehow, but because I never had it. Because those that are his, he doesn't lose any of them. You think, about, you think about Judas. The Bible even says that he was not mine because if he was mine, I would never have lost him. You think about that. God doesn't lose sheep that are his. Now, that doesn't mean we won't backslide at, at some time. That doesn't mean we won't sometimes have a, have a, a heart of lack of faith. That, but that does mean I'm never going to get to the place in my life where I'm like, Jesus, the son of God, not, not true. Right. No, no, because when you have that record, you know, and you know his voice and he knows you. So again, hold to the doctrines of the word of God, the beginning of our confidence, the, the, the faith that produces a confidence and that confidence that produces a hope and a joy. And now I'm seated at his table and I'm not going to lose that seat at his table under his headship, under his house. All of that is what this text is saying. And what a beautiful thing that this doesn't change. 
Because sometimes my confidence changes, doesn't it? Sometimes, like, if we're going to go back to this illustration, if this is the beginning of our confidence, the word of God, now I've got my confidence, and my confidence produces that hope and that joy. Man, sometimes my confidence is shaken. Sometimes I wake up and don't feel saved. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the fact of the matter is, when I hold to the beginning of my confidence, when I hold to this, this never changes. And the fact of the matter is, there may be a day where I don't feel like, man, I don't feel like the Holy Spirit's talking to me. I don't feel like I, I can reach him. What I do know is the confidence, the beginning of my confidence has never and will never change. God established his word. He gave us the record, the witness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the witness of the blood, the water, and the, the, the Spirit are all there for you and I to recognize, hey, I'm his, and I'm going to hold that confidence. So look at verse 15. While it is said today, if we will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. So again, he's reasserting, keep your hearts tender, hold on to these truths. Verse 16, for some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. So he said, when Israel left, not everybody came with Israel out of Egypt. And again, there may be people in the congregation, you're in the congregation, but your heart, you, you never got saved. You're, you're still a child of Pharaoh, if you will. And just be mindful of that, be careful of that. But those who, again, understood the record, the beginning of your confidence is never going to change. Verse 17, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? To whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So he says, those who rejected the word, they, they, they died in the wilderness. Verse 19, so we see that they uh, could not enter in because of, what's the last word? Unbelief. Aren't you glad if you're a child of God, you believed on the name of the Son of God and unbelief can never be your destiny? Praise the Lord for that. And you can hold that in confidence because the beginning of your confidence will never change. And that's all Paul, that, oh, I just said Paul. Back off, back off. Listen, if you, I, I told somebody recently, I think it was Miss Alex. She asked, who wrote this book? I said, honestly, if you just opened to the back and said, Paul, you're probably right, except in Hebrews. Okay, but uh, unbelief is not something that a Christian in this, in this re, uh, respect can, can ever experience. Now, there's gonna be times where your faith is weak, but that record stands undaunting, unchanged, the, the beginning of our confidence, as it were. Let's pray.